This is the Build Wealth Canada Show, episode number 73. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hello, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Happy New Year. Today, we have Rob Engen on the show, who is the creator of one of the most respected personal finance blogs in Canada over at Boomer and Echo. He's been writing about personal finance and investing on the blog for more than 10 years, and he's also a fee-only financial planner where he helps Canadians achieve their financial goals through unbiased and objective advice, as he doesn't sell investments or anything like that. Now, in this interview, you'll learn the most impactful financial decisions that we Canadians can make to set ourselves up for success. We're also gonna cover the different components that you should look for when analyzing if there are any critical flaws in your investment portfolio. And we also cover what a good investment portfolio structure is for somebody looking to retire early and what withdrawal strategies to consider so that you don't run out of money in retirement. So we cover all of that and much more during this interview. Now, before we get into that, since the new year has just started, it is important to remember a few key things specifically for us Canadians when it comes to our investment. So first is that your TFSA contribution room just went up by $6,000. And if you have a partner, you each get that. So that would be $12,000 as a household if let's say just you and your partner there. And now you can add that to your TFSA in addition to any contribution room that you have left over from prior years. And if you're not maxed out and want to see your contribution room, the best way to check that is to log into your account on the Canada Revenue Agency site, and that's where you can see your TFSA and RRSP contribution room. Now, one quick little warning that I've noticed is that with the TFSA, the CRA doesn't always have the most updated number. So they're going to have some numbers there, but if you've been doing some withdrawals or deposits, those might not be reflected. And so I always do recommend that you do actually track it on a separate spreadsheet just so that you always know how much you're putting in, if you took any out because you get a contribution room back. You definitely want to manage that carefully because there are fees if you basically get it wrong and you over-contribute. Now, on a similar note, when a new year starts, you'll also soon start seeing ads everywhere for RRSP season. Now, why is this important? It's because you have until March the 1st of 2021 to contribute to your RRSP and have that contribution still count towards the previous year. And if you're listening to this episode years later, then basically this is something that does happen every single year. So you basically have January and February of the new year to make those contributions and still have a count towards the previous year if you want. Now, why is this important? So right now it's 2021. And let's say in the year 2020, you earned $60,000 from your job. Well, the lowest federal tax bracket in Canada is around $48,000 per year. So that's a $12,000 difference between what you made. So in this example, the $60,000 a year and the lowest tax bracket, which is $48,000. So the difference is $12,000. So this means that those $12,000 that are above the lowest tax bracket are going to be taxed at a higher tax rate. Now, if you were to instead take that $12,000 and invest it in your RRSP, that would take your income down to that lowest tax bracket of $48,000. And this is actually what my wife and I did, which helped us retire in our 30s. Both of us were not in the lowest tax bracket, but because we put so much into our RRSPs, 
we were being taxed as if we were in the lowest bracket for some of our savings years. And then when you retire, unless you're really wealthy, you're realistically going to be in the lowest tax bracket anyway. So essentially, by doing things this way, you're able to be taxed at the lowest tax rate throughout your life, or at least very close to it, depending on how much you make at your job and how much you're saving. All right, so definitely something to have on your radar both this year as well as every year as this is something that you should remember to think about whenever a new year starts. Now, speaking of RRSPs and TFSAs, I have some really exciting news in that my favorite bank and the bank that I personally use is now letting us have RRSPs and TFSAs with them. Now, why am I actually excited about this? Well, it's because they are currently offering 2.3% interest on money that you have in those accounts, which is way more than what I'm seeing from other banks in Canada by far. Plus, there's no fees, no minimum balances, and it's secured by the government through CDIC insurance. Now, you may be wondering, Cornell, why would you recommend this? Don't you do passive index investing by buying ETFs in your RRSP and TFSA where you can get an even higher rate of return? And the answer is yes, definitely. That is what I do. And it is what I suggest you do too when it comes to ramping up your retirement savings. But it's important to remember that not everyone is ready to have most of their savings in the markets because while the expected return in the markets is higher than these RSP and TFSA savings accounts, you also get a lot more volatility by investing in the markets. And so depending on your situation, you may not want that volatility yet and would rather have the safer, more secure, and less volatile investment. So for example, in the case of the TFSA, there may be a purchase that you are saving for that you are prioritizing over retirement savings. For example, many Canadians use their TFSA for the down payment on their house. This way, you can get a higher rate of interest, it's tax-free, and you get that contribution room back anyway. Now, the key takeaway here is if your TFSA is just going to sit there empty because you're saving for a down payment on a house first, or because maybe you're saving for something else before you want to start investing, then might as well use that TFSA savings account to get that secured higher rate of interest and to get all of that tax-free. There's no reason you should have money saving, you know, gathering up in your checking account and your TFSA is just sitting there empty. That doesn't make any sense at all because you are getting taxed on the interest that you're getting in your checking account versus you wouldn't be getting taxed on that if it was in your TFSA. So using a TFSA account can help you with that as you're basically getting more interest than if you were to keep it at a bank. It's tax-free, plus it's guaranteed and insured by the Canadian government. So you know that it's going to be there when it's time to make that house down payment or make that purchase that you were saving for. Now, in the case of the RRSP, when does that make sense? The RRSP can also be a good fit as what you invest there can count as the fixed income for the safe portion of your portfolio. Now, instead, you could do something like a bond ETF in your RRSP. So ZEG is a popular one, Z-A-G, and that's fine. And they do have a higher expected return long term. But in the current interest rate environment, you'll actually get a smaller yield with a bond ETF and the bonds are not secured through CDIC insurance either. So it's a trade-off. A bond ETF will have a higher long-term expected return, but it's not guaranteed. 
it will fluctuate and currently will actually give you less interest compared to the RSP account that I'm talking about for that safe portion of your portfolio. So I'm definitely not saying to never buy another bond ETF again, as those definitely have their place. But if you are looking for something ultra safe and secured by the government, then this is something to consider for a portion of your portfolio, especially if you don't want the entire fixed income portion of your portfolio to be subject to fluctuations that come with bond ETFs. Now, just to give you some context, the rate that EQ has on their RRSP and TFSA is 2.3% at the time of this recording, which, like I said, is much higher than what I'm seeing being offered by other banks. And their high interest savings account is at 1.5% currently, which, like I said, is up to 30 times higher than what many other banks are offering. So definitely worth considering. And all that money is guaranteed and safe as it's covered by the government's CDIC insurance. Now, if you do choose to sign up to EQ Savings Account, their RSP or their TFSA, then really all that I ask is that you use my link, which is buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ, as that would really help support the show. And as a thank you for doing that, I'll also send you my guide on all the investments that I personally buy and own with explanations on why I chose them, which I think will help you a lot in optimizing your investments and really becoming more aware of some of the top ETFs in Canada, which ones have the lowest fees, while also seeing you know really a well-optimized model portfolio that you can use yourself if you want. So this is literally my portfolio and what I invest in and where we hold everything. And this is what we're living off in retirement. So to get that, you can just sign up for a free high interest savings account over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash the letter E and the letter Q. And once you have that account, you can open up a free TFSA and or an RRSP and just send me any confirmation that you get from EQ to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca. .ca and I'll email you the guide for free. So thank you in advance for supporting the show in that way. And now let's get into the interview. All right, Rob, welcome to the show. Well, Cornell, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for being on. It was great interviewing you during the financial summit. So now this is great. We get to do the podcast version of that. I get to basically ask you some new questions, which I'm excited to do. Uh, so yeah, so, so let's get started. But for anybody that hasn't heard of you before, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, for sure. So um, uh, I blog at boomerandecho.com and uh, have been for the past 10 plus years. Um, turned 41 this year, married with two kids, living in Lethbridge, Alberta, and uh, recently uh, quit my full-time job, uh, which was in the public sector at a university, um, to do the blog and financial planning and some freelance writing uh, full-time now. So that kind of uh, lined up well for this uh, new kind of work from home life that we're all uh, into right now. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, congratulations on that. That's such a big accomplishment to be able to to pull that off, especially I'm sure leaving the pension behind, you know, wasn't the most fun thing. So it's, it's great that you, uh, you were able to do that because not everybody has the willingness to take on that kind of thing. So it's great. Yeah, it was a bit scary, you know, leaving a full-time job with uh, with good benefits and a pension, but and you know, having a young family and and still having a mortgage and that sort of thing, it was a bit of a leap of faith, but um, you know, over the past year it's been a great learning experience and uh, I certainly don't have any regrets. For sure. That's awesome. Uh, and then now, you know, we're about to kick off in the new year and I'm sure there's many Canadians that have a new year's resolution of really just getting their finances in order and optimize, what would you say are some of the most impactful financial decisions that Canadians can make just to set ourselves up for success? 
You know, I think in, anytime you have that light bulb moment where you want to start uh, looking at your finances and, and taking those first steps, you know, whether it's New Year's resolutions or just some change in your life, um, you know, it is, is important to kind of take a first take a snapshot of where you're at right now. And that could be just simply defining your net worth and your financial position. And then what I like to do at the start of the year is really make a spending plan for the year. So a lot of people get kind of scared off about the the, the B word, the budget word. Um, because it sounds so restrictive and uh, it's almost like dieting where you don't, uh, you know, counting calories and that sort of thing. Uh, you don't want to set yourself up to fail. And so what I like to recommend is doing a spending plan over the entire year where, you know, you budget in some money for the fun things you like to do. Um, but you also set up some savings contributions, uh, based on your goals, uh, you know, both short and long term. And, and automate those. I mean, that's really the best way to do it. You know, you always, we always hear about mortgage payments being, you know, the ultimate forced savings because it just gets deducted from your uh, checking account, that payment every month. And uh, that's how I treat my savings is like a bill payment where it's just automatically deducted, just like I pay my heating bill and, uh, you know, my utilities. So, uh, that's step number one is really just making that spending plan and then trying to automate those contributions as much as possible. And how do you automate things? I, I'm guessing you're a DIY investor. Do you just have it auto deposit into your brokerage account or do you do something else as far as automation goes? So I'm pretty uh, hands-on when it comes to budgeting and and, and old school you know, as, um, you know, I, I've used kind of an Excel spreadsheet my whole uh my whole life uh, in terms of tracking my spending and, and building that spending plan. And so um, I almost don't really follow my own advice in a way because, you know, rather than contributing $500 a month to my TFSA, for example, I might just want to do it all at once in January. Um, you know, so those type of lumpy contributions might not lend itself to this automated um, type uh, approach that I typically recommend. Um you know, but of course, my situation is a little bit different than everybody else's. And, um, you know, so for the for the vast majority of people, I just say, you know, set up a, an automatic deduction that goes right into your brokerage account or your managed account or your robo advisor account, whatever that is, so that it can get automatically invested. Um, and when I do that, like uh, for my kids, RESPs, for example, that's a good one where it's a monthly contribution. Right. So on the 15th of every month. $416.66 is getting whisked away uh, into my TDE series funds, which then I go buy the appropriate uh, fund for that month. And uh, that's how I've been doing it. You know, my kids are 11 and 8, so I've been doing that for quite a while now. Um, and then I can kind of rebalance it on my own, uh, just being a little more hands-on that way. Now, you mentioned TDE series, which is a type of low-cost mutual fund with the indexes, right? And with that one, if I remember correctly, you are able to somewhat automate that one where you are you put in the contributions and it automatically buys. Is that correct? Or uh, so I think you can do it that way on the, uh, on the easy web side or on the banking side, but I have the discount brokerage side of things with TD Direct. And so my my contribution itself goes into the brokerage account into cash and then I buy it. Um, so I haven't really gone and, 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 uh, tried to link it or tried to add another step, which is automatically purchasing that fund. So I'm not actually sure if you can do that on the, on the discount brokerage side, but, um, because I like to control the time, like I have four, 
funds in there to make a balanced portfolio. And so I just buy whatever's lagging, whatever's down, uh, which doesn't really lend itself to automated. Like I can't just say I want to buy the Canadian E-Series fund in January and then the US one in February because I want to control that timing. Mm, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, because, well, when you're, you're right, when you, if you were able to fully automate everything, then you're right, you can't, you wouldn't be able to just have it automatically rebalance for you, really. Because if you want to automatically rebalance, you basically have to, like you said, buy the lowest one. And so you have to physically look at that and say, okay, this is the one that's currently lower, that's underweight in my portfolio. And so I'm going to buy that one. Whereas if it was really automated and you're just saying, buy this one ETF or mutual fund every month, then I guess you can't really do that if you're dealing with multiple funds. Exactly. And this is another situation where I say do as I say, not as I do, because I'm typically recommending to my readers and clients to look at the um, asset allocation ETFs like a Vanguard or iShares, uh, the VBALs and XBALs of the world, um, because now you can set up that automatic contribution and have it automatically invest into that fund, which itself is automatically rebalancing. So now there's no more tinkering and picking and choosing which fund you want to allocate, which I think, again, takes the decision making away from from us, which in in a lot of cases is a good thing. Um, I just consider my RESP as one of those legacy portfolios that was kind of been around for the last 10, 11 years that, uh, you know, well before these asset allocation ETFs existed, it's free to contribute. I kind of have a plan down pat. So that's one I've kind of stuck to. Uh, but all of my other investments are held in these uh, these one ticket uh, asset allocation ETFs. Gotcha. Now, the last time I checked, we still weren't able to have something automatically invest for you without you having to do anything, right? You would you could automate to say, okay, I want to transfer one thousand every month to let's say my Quest Trade account, but then it's just going to sit there in cash. You still have to go in there and actually invest it yourself. Last I checked, from your experience, have you found the same, or have there been any developments in that area? Yeah, it's a, it's typically a two step process. You're right. It's that initial contribution that goes into the cash side of your brokerage account, and then now you have to make that actual purchase yourself. And so, uh, yeah, I'm not aware of anyone that does it automatically for you. Maybe Scotia iTrade. I'm not, I'm not sure about that, um, where you can do those uh, automated uh, contributions and it'll do it for you. Uh, I thought they had something going with uh, the iShares, XBAL, and, and XGrow, but, uh, but don't quote me on that. Um, but and that's where the where maybe like a robo advisor comes in handy now where you want to eliminate that two step process uh, with the robo, you can just contribute and then that money gets automatically spread around to your, you know, the various ETFs that are held inside your portfolio. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. Then there's always the pros and cons of, OK, the more automated you tend to get, the more fees you're going to pay. So, yes, you go with a robo. Yes, they can automate, but they're going to charge you higher fees than something like the asset allocation ETF you mentioned. And then if you want to optimize even more, you buy individual ETFs, but then also now you have to worry about rebalancing, right? So it seems like there's this sort of trade-off where the more automated you want it, the more time it's going to, or basically it's going to take you less time, but you're going to be paying higher fees. There might be not as many tax optimization opportunities, that kind of a thing. So yeah, that seems to be the trade-off. I mean, it comes down to really fees versus simplicity, and uh, and in a lot of cases, um, you know, um, you know, pretty savvy investors who who know that, for example, U.S. listed ETFs are you know cheaper than Canadian, 
and they have to perform a, you know, a currency conversion maneuver known as Norbert's Gambit uh, to do that. Right. Whereas you talk to 95% of investors out there and first of all, they have no idea what you're talking about and to execute that strategy would just be like beyond the scope of what they're willing to do. And so that's, again, you go back to the simplicity of an asset allocation ETF where it's two steps or the robo advisor where it's one step and uh, you're still saving, you know, a ton of fees versus, you know, a typical Canadian mutual fund uh, or managed portfolio. But um, what's something that an investor is actually going to stick with and be able to kind of uh, keep up with on their own? That's true. Yeah, it's like all the optimizations are for nothing if you aren't able to actually stick with it or you end up never actually implementing it because it's just too complex and you don't have exactly. to start at that highest level of complexity. So um, for sure. Just as an off question, you, you mentioned the our ESPs and, and how you deal with those. Have you... I mean, I've always just bought individual ETFs just for the tax optimization, but I've actually started leaning towards the asset allocation ETFs when it comes to our ESPs specifically, because I treat those as their own independent portfolio. And so when you're when you're treating them in that way, I haven't really found any sort of big enough reasons to buy individual ETFs within an RESP when you can just buy one and it'll automatically rebalance. I mean, yeah, the fees are going to be a bit higher with asset allocation TF, but I mean, your asset allocation TF isn't going to be like a multi-million dollar amount anyway. So like the little tiny, tiny, you know, number of points that you're paying more isn't really that much of a factor anymore. What's your take on that? Uh, well, I think you're exactly right. Well, first of all, I treat an RESP like a really condensed version of like retirement planning where you only have 18 years really to... Um, contribute and maximize this account before, you know, your kids are, you know, hopefully off to post-secondary and, and starting to withdraw. So in along the way, you need to carefully retool that portfolio, recalibrate it uh, according to your risk tolerance, because as obviously you get closer to post-secondary, you're going to need that money and you want less kind of exposed to the stock market. And so anything, you know, I'm not too fussed about uh, a paying a little bit higher of a fee because you're already getting the 20% grant Right. I mean, that in itself is, uh, you know, even if you were like legitimately afraid of the stock market and just wanted to plow money into uh, GICs or savings, you're still going to be ahead because of the 20 percent grant. It's still a great tool. Uh, but for the rest of us that want some market exposure and want to grow that portfolio as big as we can, um, you know, what, one reason I stuck with the E-Series funds is because of the uh, one low cost, but uh, because of the, the free contributions and no transaction fees with those with those index funds. And so you got to be careful with the asset allocation ETFs, because if you're contributing monthly like I do and you're in a discount brokerage account that uh, charges you a, you know, a $10 transaction fee, you know, that can really add up over the course of a year and over the course of 18 years. You know, so in that case, you've got options like a Quest Trade where you can buy the ETFs for free. But then when it comes down to the decumulation of that RESP, um, you know, now you've got maybe some transaction costs. Um, and then the other thing was, you know, dealing with TD or a big bank. I've got someone I can go to, a physical branch I can go and, um, you know, if there's an issue with the decumulation of it or, or um, you know, unwinding that RESP and make, uh, then I can actually go to someone and, and, uh, and deal with that versus, you know, waiting hours on hold, uh, trying to get a hold of somebody, um, you know, at a, at a virtual kind of office. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point that you brought that up. Yeah, definitely. 
that is something that should be factored in. I mean, you can actually go to a branch and say, all right, guys, I'm unwinding this RESP now. My kid's going to college soon. Let's One tool I like with uh, the RESP, though, is, um, is the robo-advisor JustWealth. They've come out with a, um, a tar- like a target date fund, but it's a target education fund where it automatically adjusts your portfolio, just like a target date fund would adjust it for your retirement date. It would adjust down the risk as your child gets closer to post-secondary. Again, automating that decision to take it out of your hands. Right. Even I'm dealing with that right now. I've got kids 11 and eight. What is that age, that perfect age where you start to dial down the risk? Uh, It just does it automatically for you at various stages. And so, you know, certainly worth a look for someone that, again, wants to take that decision away from uh, out of their hands. And now a quick break to tell you about some of the resources you may find helpful on our Build Wealth Canada site. Hey there, this is just a quick intermission to let you know about a new free educational resource that I posted for you on the Build Wealth Canada site. So as you may know, I ran the Canadian Financial Summit this year and I did a video presentation titled What DIY Passive Investing Style is Optimum for You? Examining the pros and cons of each. And so all the talks from the most recent summit are actually now only available true owners of the All Access Pass, but I thought I'd post this talk for you for free just as a Build Wealth Canada listener since I find that many of us When we first learn about the ridiculous fees that we Canadians get charged on mutual funds, the next question naturally becomes, what type of DIY passive index investor should I be? So in Canada, there are really three main types that we can choose from. There's using a robo-advisor versus using an asset allocation ETF versus buying individual ETFs, which is what I do. So while each of these options will move you away from overpaying in fees and let you retire years earlier, possibly even decades earlier, depending how much you were getting overcharged on fees, There are actually pros and cons to each approach, and there isn't one method that is perfect for all Canadians. And so in this presentation, I basically take you through the pros and cons of each one so that you can make a more educated decision on which one is right for you. And while this is especially critical for those Canadians looking to become DIY investors, even if you are already a DIY investor, this presentation will help you determine if maybe now is the time to switch to a different style to help lower your fees even further. So I made this talk available for free to all Build Wealth Canada listeners, and you can get it by going over to buildwealthcanada.ca slash investing style. All one word, no spaces, no hyphens or anything like that. So that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash investing style. All right, so that's all. Enjoy. And now back to the show. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah, I get that question quite a bit from listeners asking, okay, my kid's going to college in four years, whatever the case is. How do I start changing the allocation? By how much? How do I move, you know, by how much should I move it more into bonds, you know, et cetera. So uh, it's interesting. Have you looked into how they actually do it? Is it in a pretty good way that you would agree with where it actually would be a good approach? Yeah, it's pretty systematic um, in terms, just like a target date fund would be just, um, I don't know, I haven't looked uh, closely at it uh, recently, but so I don't know if it does it every single year, but at certain age milestones, it's going to start, you know, selling off some of the equity portion and adding more fixed income. And so would it be a, uh, exactly how I would do it? Well, I don't know, but they have professionals that have designed this uh, modeled off of, you know, these classic uh, BlackRock style or RBC style target date funds that have been around for a long time. So uh, I've, I'm, I'm pretty sure they've got it, uh, you know, as, as close to right as possible. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, that's a, great, that's a really, really nice feature. Because, um, yeah, there's a lot of DIY investors that probably... <laughs> 
you know, want to be DIY investors but don't really know exactly how to pull that off and wouldn't mind even paying a little bit higher MER just to have that piece automated so they don't have to worry about it and they can just focus on the contributions. Well, it's just like retirement, right? And again, that's why I call RESPs like a mini retirement planning because when you think about your own retirement, you work so hard and save uh, in this accumulation phase and that, that part's kind of easy. Then as you get closer to retirement, I have to start thinking about decumulation. That's the hard part. And so how do you design that? And, and it, it's the same in RESPs. So, you know, we're just, um, you know, again, adding some more complexity to this, where if you could take it away with an automatic rebalancing uh, over the over the lifetime of that portfolio, I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm, for sure. Now, I noticed too that one of the things you do as part of your financial planning practice are investment portfolio reviews. Now, for anybody that's new to this, what is an investment portfolio review and what are the different components that you like to look for when analyzing if someone has any critical flaws in their portfolio? Well, so first of all, I like to take a look at what exactly they are uh, invested in. So whether that's a managed portfolio with a bank or investment firm in uh, various mutual funds, uh, could be at a robo-advisor, they could be picking their own individual stocks, uh, uh, that sort of thing. And so I'll look at it from an account structure. So what do they have? RRSPs, a Lira, a TFSA, that sort of thing. Um, I'll first look at you know, their asset mix. Does it match up to their age and stage of life? Is this risk appropriate for this individual uh, based on their short and long-term goals? Um, I'll look at the diversification of it, right? Is it matching kind of best practices in terms of global uh, geographic representation? Or is this something that's only focused on, you know, like Canadian energy stocks, for example? And I've seen all kinds of portfolios that have, you know, are heavily tilted towards uh, a certain thematic uh, either stocks or sector like uh, energy or cannabis or whatever that flavor of the day might have been. And so, you know, I've seen a lot of kind of horror stories when it comes to pick, building your own portfolio. So, you know, those are the things that would jump out at me. I'd look at the costs again. So for a managed portfolio, um, you know, it may, it may be pretty sensible in terms of a of diversification and risk tolerance. Um, but what kind of fees are you paying? Now, a lot of these mutual funds are are uh, index funds masquerading as actively managed funds, right? You know, or, or as they say, closet index funds. So, you know, a Canadian mutual fund, equity mutual fund that charges, you know, two, two and a half percent um, probably doesn't look a lot different than a Canadian index fund or ETF that charges, you know, a tenth of that or less. And so, you know, then, then explaining that and say, look, this is the makeup of your portfolio. This is the makeup of a model portfolio that is very similar. Here's the difference in fees. And then I put those fees in dollar terms, right? So too often we get, um, we look at a, a fee that says 2% and we think, oh, that's not a big deal, right? It's 2% out of 100. Um, but it's not real. it doesn't really work that way in the investment fees world. It's 2% of your uh, portfolio, yes, but uh, if you think about it in terms of the expected return on your um, on your investment, let's say it's six percent. Well, two percent uh, in fees means it's taking away a third of your return, right? And so when you put it in that, that terms, thirty three percent sounds like a huge fee compared to you know to the context of two percent. 
And so I always put it in dollar terms, right? You know, you have a $500,000 portfolio paying 2%, that's $10,000 a year. Okay. Well, what it, would it look like if your portfolio was designed in the same way, but you were only paying $1,000 a year in fees, right? And, and so showing them what this model portfolio could look like. And then trying to meet my clients or they were these, uh, um, you know, the clients uh, where they are in terms of, um, you know, their investing ability, their desire to either manage their own portfolio, their knowledge. Okay, so again, my philosophy is big, broad diversification, low cost uh, indexing. And so what are some ways you could do that? So you can point you to some model portfolios that are asset allocation ETFs, or if you really want to slice and dice it down to the individual ETFs to save on fees, you know, here's what you could do and here's what that fee breakdown would be. Okay, some people are not are not cut out for DIY, even as I explained, it's a two step process. They don't want to take that extra step, right? That kind of scares them. And so then you look at some robo-advisor options where the fee is a little bit higher, but they take that second step away from you. Uh, so it's a little more hands-off. And some people just don't trust uh, a discount broker or a robo-advisor for whatever reason, but there is huge trust among the big banks. And so I'll show them that, you know, your um, Canadian balanced mutual fund uh, at one of the big banks that's costing you 2% in MER can be replicated with these four index funds that all the banks sell in one form or another. TDE series happens to be the lowest cost one or the most, most popular, uh, but all the banks have their own version of index funds. They're just way up high on the product shelf that they never talk about them. And so armed with the information of going to their advisor and saying, I'd actually like to break up my big balanced mutual fund uh, and buy these four index funds in equivalent, you know, to create the same type of portfolio, um, they can cut their fees in half, you know, or better. And so, you know, that's the type of information I'll arm the clients with to say, here's the risk, to uh, risk um, appropriateness of your portfolio. Um, versus where you're at in your age and stage of life. Here are the fees that you're paying, both in percentage and dollar terms. Here's what a similar portfolio would be um, in about three different variations of it, depending on your skill uh, and knowledge. And um, and really, you know, kind of talk about the pros and cons of, uh, of, of going to that type of portfolio. Now, the last thing I'll say is that some people come to me with a, and they're in a managed portfolio. And I'm not just saying to people, you know, ditch your advisor and do this on your own because it just doesn't line up for, you know, a good majority of people. They're not cut out for DIY investing. Um, so what I ask is, you know, your investments may be... Um, you know, you may be paying because that's how the financial services industry works here. You may be paying one, one and a half, two percent on your investment assets. But what kind of advice are you getting? Right. Are you getting uh, financial planning, retirement planning, estate planning, tax planning? Are you getting advice from your uh, advisor or are you getting a phone call once a year at uh, during RSP season to make your annual contribution? Right. So, again, you know, are you if you're paying one percent or one point two five percent? Yeah, there are cheaper options, but you remove the advice component of it. Um, whereas you may be getting good value from that advice, and so in that case, I'd advise someone just kind of stay put because they're getting what they need out of that portfolio and out of that financial planning engagement. 
versus just going out on their own just to save fees. From your experience, if you, let's say you have a financial advisor at a big bank and you brought up a great point about how some people, and I, I can think of people in my life where they will never switch to a Quest trade or whatever, right? They, they've been with, yep. let's say, TD or whoever for X many years they trust them. It's a giant institution. They're just going to, you know, they don't care if they're paying $10 a trade instead of nothing for an ETF because th- that trust is, you know, or that, you know, whatever the peace of mind, right, is, is worth it for them to pay those slightly higher transaction fees. But let's, so let's say they have an advisor. Now you mentioned, okay, you can go to your advisor. They all have a discount brokerage arm. They all have access to those same ETFs that you can buy on Quest Trade or wherever. Can you say, okay, Mr. Advisor or Mrs. Advisor, instead of you being in these actively managed funds where I'm paying 2%, I would like to, let's say, move over to this asset allocation ETF or go into these low-cost ETFs. Can you please sell these for me and what you have now, the actively managed ones, and buy these less expensive ones? Is that something that, from your experience with clients, that they are willing to do? Or is it at that point, they're like, no, we're only going to give you an advisor if you own actively managed funds by us, which are higher fee, if you want to buy these lower cost options, you have to get them yourself through the discount brokerage arm of our bank. What's been your experience with that? So if you're working in uh, in branch with an advisor in branch, they are only selling their own mutual funds. Like they're restricted. They can't sell ETFs. Oh, okay. Them, right? So, Interesting. And that's why I say... Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pick on RBC because they have a big uh, balanced fund. Uh, I think it charges about 2.12% MER. Uh, RBC also has a suite of index mutual funds, okay? And they come in at around 1% if you built the same portfolio with, with four index mutual funds. And so I can find the fund codes and show uh, and the names of these funds and arm my this client with that information to just walk over to their make an appointment and get in with their in-house bank manager uh, or bank advisor and say you know break, sell this Canadian or this uh, balanced mutual fund and invest me in these index funds. It's the same portfolio, so there shouldn't be a risk issue, right? It's not about like um, taking this out of a balanced portfolio 60-40 and putting me all in 100% equities, right? So there should be no risk change to it. Now, the advisor might um, have rebuttals for that as to why you'd want to do that and you don't want to buy an index fund and blah, 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 uh, which we know is all kind of bunk. But um, I have had clients do exactly this. They've armed, they're armed with the playbook. They don't want to leave their bank for whatever reason, um, but they've, they're armed with this playbook because they see the fees, right? I mean, that's what jumps out at them is the dollar term. It's the same portfolio at half the cost, uh, therefore should lead to the better future outcome. And so armed with that playbook and just saying, these are the funds I want and really insisting on them. Um, I've, I've had success with uh, clients uh, who, who go ahead and do that. Very interesting. But like you said, those funds would still be that bank's funds. So there's still going to be higher yeah. fees than if you just bought in, you know, picked your own fees and did it through Quest Trade or through that bank's discount brokerage, right? So you're still paying a higher fee. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. So that, and, that's, and that's my point to these clients is that here's the cheapest option, right? But that involves opening the discount brokerage account, transferring your money over there, contributing to that uh, as well and then and then making that purchase right taking that second step 
um, which may be just way too beyond the scope of what this client is. And I, I think of, you know, you know, you're try to explain this to your neighbor or your parents who um, have just been kind of investing with a bank all their lives because that's what you did back then. And um, and would they actually take the leap and act on this new DIY type portfolio? Probably not. Uh, but could they, armed with the correct information, go to their advisor and go, you know what, I'm paying too much here and this portfolio could be the exact same thing for half the cost. Yes, it's not, uh, it's not individual ETF cheap, but it's still a 50% savings over what they were paying before. And so that's kind of the trade-off to the, for those who still need a managed account uh, still want to be with a big bank, you're kind of at the mercy of the, their, the bank's own funds. But just knowing that the bank has funds that are low cost, they just don't tell you about them, mm -hmm. uh, is, is, a, is a good thing to arm them with. Very interesting. Yeah, so you're saying instead of paying, let's say, 2%, you might be able to trim it down to 1%. With exactly. still having an advisor, still having that customer service of them helping you one-on-one, -on -one, still them buying it for you. So you never actually have to go into that brokerage and buy the ETF or the mutual funds yourself. But it's not going to get you to like 0.15 like you are if you do buy them yourself. Um, but very if you think about interesting. It, like Cornell, it is interesting. Um, and, and really, it's more the idea of, you know, the passively tracking the, uh, the index through these funds. And the actual allocation. So I always kind of look at. I think Canadian Couch Potato publishes these uh, these returns of his model portfolios every year, and so he'll look at the van like Vanguard's VBAL, for example, uh, Tangerine's balance portfolio, which again it's it's four times the cost of VBAL, right? It's one point oh seven MER uh, E series funds, which again a little bit higher than than uh, than Vanguard. They're all around the same. Like last year, all these balance funds returned between 14 and 15%, right? So sometimes we just get so fixated on the cost rather than the concept of, you know, just lowering my fees and, and investing in this index fund um, or the, this balanced index portfolio. Uh, you're going to get a pretty similar outcome, right? And so that was that's pretty shocking for a lot of people when I point that out is that, you know, between 14 and 15%, regardless of whether you had VBAL, the lower cost one, or E-Series or Tangerine, they were all in the same ballpark. Mm, interesting, yeah. And yeah, I guess it makes sense too from the bank side. There is no free lunch at the end of the day. If they're going to be hiring an advisor that's going to spend time with you and they have to pay them their salary, their bonuses, they have to give them office space and could be downtown Toronto, which is obviously not cheap, things of that right. nature, they're not going to let you sort of work the system by using all that customer service and those resources to buy products that they get barely any profit off of. Oh, exactly. Uh, and if you were to go into your bank for, again, like I said, they are not licensed to sell the ETFs. Um, so they would point you towards the discount brokerage. They say, this is what would be more appropriate for you, but you're going to have to do it yourself, which comes with no advice, right? That, like, that's the trade-off. Again, we talk about trade-offs, uh, simplicity and fees. Uh, the bank's going to say, well, yeah, you can slash your fees to the bone, but that doesn't come with advice. And so then you just kind of take that for what it's worth. Are you actually getting advice? Um, then maybe it's more appropriate to stay put in as low a fee portfolio as you can get. Um, but if you're not and you're willing to kind of jump into the DIY side, then the discount brokerage or a robo would be the way to go. Mm -hmm. One thing that I've been curious in terms of licensing in Canada and who has can legally basically give you advice on investments, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but this seems a bit strange to me. It seems almost like 
in order to be allowed to recommend specific investments to someone based on their specific situation, you do need to have the right licenses, which that makes sense. But then that license also entails you being able to sell those investments to that person, which can potentially create a huge conflict of interest because now they could just try to sell you whatever has the highest fees. So Mm -hmm. am I correct in that assessment? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, any bank or investment fund advisor, you know, at a retail level is, um, you know, they're licensed to sell mutual funds or insurance products so that their own company or firm is is uh, is offering. And so it's only when you get to the portfolio manager level where you have more discretionary authority over uh, being able to pick uh, from different managers. And that's where you could get um, you know, the ETF type portfolio that you'd want in the low fees, you'd still pay the the portfolio manager like a 1% fee, but they now have discretionary authority to, you know, pick, you know, from a lot of fund providers rather than just the one that's going to pay them the most. And so, but the problem is most people don't have access to that level of service um, because a lot of those type of boutique portfolio manager type shops um, you know, I think of like a PWL Capital, these these type of firms um, have pretty high minimums, like a million, million dollars to get in there. So what's the gap there, right? From a retail bank to $2 million, it's a lot. And so that's where we're trying to fill the void with, you know, fee-only advisors, robo-advisors, discount brokerages, trying to lower the fees for investing, um, trying to in, uh, engage and, and educate our clients to say that you know investing's really been solved if you kind of do this really low cost, globally diversified, um, uh, risk appropriate portfolio. There's a number of ways to do that, and then get advice somewhere else. Like you need advice on the big picture, financial planning, retirement planning, tax management, th- those kinds of things. Not uh, I can find the winning mutual fund or I can pick and choose the best time to get in or out of the market, mm-hmm. right? So it sounds like if you have a question, not so much on the financial planning side, but on the, you know, which ETF should I buy or which stock should I buy from that end, which a lot of people have these questions because there's, as you know, thousands of options out there it can be pretty overwhelming. So correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like option one is, well, you just, you do that research yourself, which and you know anybody can do, and you have to try to educate yourself on it. Um, or option two is you deal with a financial advisor who's licensed to sell that. They are legally allowed to give you advice, but acknowledge that they there could be a giant conflict of interest because they might recommend a certain stock to you, and they don't have any sort of fiduciary responsibility for you in Canada, so they could just recommend a suitable investment for you, but definitely yes. nowhere near the lowest cost, but hey, it's suitable so they can do it, uh, right? So that's the other option where you're sort of getting like, I don't know, argue, potentially tainted advice, I guess I'll call it. Yep. And yep. then are you saying now option three is more the portfolio manager level where now you're paying them a percentage of, of your assets and now they do the financial planning side for you and the investment decision piece for you. And yes. now they... I guess you have to have this conversation with them, but they would not get any sort of kickback on that in theory, right? Because they're already getting paid that one, let's say 1% of your portfolio for that advice. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, that's, that's the model that, um, you know, that, that level or that boutique firm, that uh, portfolio manager type uh, advisor is, um, is striving towards is you pay me a 1% fee, maybe less, maybe a little bit more, flat fee on the portfolio value. 
but then I can go ahead and, and invest as the advisor in, um, you know, the lowest fee or any type of uh, fund, not necessarily, I'm not necessarily, um, you know, hamstrung to my own firm's funds, right? You know, I have full discretion to build whatever I want. And so now you've removed at least that conflict. I mean, yes, there's still 1% of assets. So there's a conflict of like gathering the most assets possible, but, um, but you've removed the, the product sales um, type of angle from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a big deal too, right? The motor, like you mentioned, the motivation to have the largest portfolio possible, right? So if you ask someone like that, hey, should I pay off my mortgage or should I invest? Hopefully they are an ethical person and they will actually crunch the numbers to decide what is the most best situation for you. But they do have that financial incentive to, oh, just invest it all because then they're going to get a higher percentage or a higher fee, right? Because they're getting a percentage of your total assets. They're not going to get that if you pay off your house, for example, right? So there's always that. That yeah, and that's what the I think that's what the industry is striving towards is that portfolio manager is a fiduciary and will look out for your best interests. So now when you go to them talking about exactly that, should I pay off my mortgage or should I invest? Um, more commonly, maybe is um, I'm leaving my workplace and uh, I have the option to take my pension uh, and invest it or leave it in uh, leave it in the pension plan, and so. Um, you know, someone with misaligned incentives might say, well, yeah, of course it makes sense to invest that money, mm-hmm. you know, but you need to, and it might make sense, but you need to do the, you need to look at the full picture and do the, do the math for it. For sure. And that's where we get into fee-for-service financial planners like yourself, right? Where you don't sell investments. So there is no conflict like that. And correct me if I'm wrong, you don't, you also do not take a percentage of assets, right? That you're just, you get paid a flat fee. And so in your case, you would not have any sort of, Finance. Basically, your advice could not be tainted by financial incentive because you're just getting paid a flat fee like a lawyer or an accountant, and you crunch those numbers. And it doesn't matter whether the portfolio is bigger because they invest it all or because they use it to pay off their mortgage. Right? You're just looking at the best decision for the client. Exactly. And my and my philosophy is really on a goals based planning. And so, um, you know, someone might have their own. You know, where I could show someone an optimal strategy, but they may, when it comes to, say, paying off your mortgage, um, but they may have a real aversion to debt. And so even with mortgage rates in the 1% to 2% range, um, knowing that you could invest that money and earn a higher rate of return, as long as their other financial savings goals have been met, um, they may want to focus on the mortgage pay down. And so I'll help them build a plan that looks at that. But I'll also show them what the trade-offs are. Again, it's all about trade-offs. And so prioritization, if you're going to prioritize the mortgage pay down, it's going to mean less wealth accumulation over time. And that may be perfectly fine with the client um, because of this debt aversion, the psychological aspect of it. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. There's always this mathematical, okay, well, here's the optimum that's going to maximize the probability of you getting the highest return. But then there's always that human component of, okay, if you go with this math approach, are you going to be waking up at night <laughs> because the market fell 30% and there's no, you just don't have the temperament to handle that. So there's always, there, there's always that animal for sure. And now a quick break to tell you about some of the resources you may find helpful on our Build Wealth Canada site. Hey there, just want to let you know about a free tool that I've been using a lot lately, which helps me quickly know how my portfolio is doing across all my accounts and to help me rebalance as well. 
So one of the reasons that I really wanted to highlight this tool is that one of the largest frustrations that I've had over the years as a DIY investor is that if you want to know how your portfolio is doing as a whole, so how much your investments are up, how much in dividends you've received, you basically have to pull up all your accounts one by one add everything up. And if you have a spouse or an RESP, then you have to open all those up individually to manually add them up in the spreadsheet, which is super tedious and annoying. And it drove me nuts for years. So between my wife and I, we have seven accounts. And even if you're single, then you likely have three. So a TFSA, an RSP, and a taxable account. So even if you're single, it's still super annoying as you still have to go into each account to add everything up. So regardless, super frustrating to get the totals and reports on how your investments are actually performing as a whole. And so the tool that I want to highlight and that I've actually gotten hooked on is called Passive. And I've partnered with them so that Build Wealth Canada listeners can actually get a premium account with them for free. And that's what I use. So there are specific instructions on how to get the free premium account. So to get all that, you can just go to Build Wealth Canada dot ca slash passive that's build wealth canada dot ca slash passive and check it out so yeah i'm a huge fan the charts and reporting alone are worth your time but i also find that one of the more difficult things for new diy investors is rebalancing your investments as that you typically have to do in a spreadsheet and it's easy to make a calculation error particularly if you're new to all this so i love how the tool automates rebalancing especially for beginner investors but even for experienced investors like myself i just love being able to see how my portfolio is doing in two mouse clicks across all my accounts instead of it being a 15-minute job of manually adding up all my investment accounts. So yeah, enjoy the free premium account. I definitely can guarantee that the free upgrade will be available forever. They're just giving it to us for now for free. Uh, So definitely take advantage while you can. And yeah, that link again with the instructions on how to redeem it and get it for free is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash passive. All right, so enjoy that. And now back to the show. Yeah. I mean, there's great research around uh, strategies like it makes sense to borrow heavily as a young investor and uh, because you maximizing the compound returns over time um, where, you know, because as a young investor, you're starting with, you know, peanuts basically. And so it takes a long time for that to compound. And so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of data out there that says, you know, borrowing heavily at the start of your investing journey makes a lot of sense because even if you kind of get not necessarily wiped out, but even if your portfolio value declines a lot, you still have a ton of time to make it up. And uh, and those compounding returns will end up, you know, really strong over the long term. But try implementing that in real life, right? We're not we're not robots. We're not algorithms. We're humans. And when our portfolio gets cut in half, we have real emotions about that. And so uh, someone that's going to actually stay the course for that, you know, um, there might be, you know, just a handful of investors who could handle that. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. So for anybody, for anybody listening, Rob's referring to some research that has come out basically suggesting that, hey, as a young investor, there could be a case made that maybe you actually do take on some debt to invest and that there's some significant positives from that from a mathematical you know, perspective. But then, yeah, if you have, let's say you're 30, you've got two kids, you've got a family to support and you borrowed all this money to invest in the markets and we get another 2008 scenario. I mean, the type of, I don't know, I, I can't think of too many people that would be able to handle something like that, right? Where it's like, I owe more than I own currently and I've got a family to support and I still have to make these interest payments. So, I mean, the, yeah. the concept makes sense. I think they call it time diversification. So, you know, yeah. you have the longest time horizon when you have the least amount of money and you have the shortest time horizon when you have the most 
money. Mm-hmm. And so this is about kind of evening that playing field by using leverage in the early years. But again, you know, there's the human component of this and, and who can actually handle this degree of leverage if something mm-hmm. goes wrong. For sure, for sure. Just to finish off the part about the portfolio reviews, Rob, and you mentioned the portfolio managers and how you know they're getting that, let's say, flat percentage fee of your portfolio of your managed assets. Do you know if it's common for them to also get a commission from the investments they sell you or not really? Or is it really like a case-by-case basis where you basically need to ask them and they have to disclose or should I mean, disclose? I think there's a lot of different models out there, mm-hmm. so it really depends. But yeah. uh, in my view of looking at kind of the ones who are doing it best, it's a flat fee. There is no extras kind of coming out out of that. Right, right. They're not getting and a that, flat fee plus commissions for selling you something that the company gets a higher commission from i would hope not but yeah. maybe in the wealth management uh, arms of the banks maybe that's happening but um mm-hmm. i i would hope i would hope that's uh that's not the case yeah it sounds like one of those things where you basically have to do your due diligence and find out okay i'm paying you this flat fee am i also paying are you also getting compensated for the investments you're recommending me and if the answer is yes then it's like, well, now you have to decide, do you trust this person? <laughs> because they now yeah. have a financial incentive to sell you one product over another that may or may not be the best for you, right? So Really, the key is transparency. And you want to ask yeah. those questions. How much, are, how much are you charging me? And, it, and, and they say 1%, 1.25%. Okay, is that it? Right? Or is there something else? It's just going to the robo-advisors and they say our management fee is 0.5%. Oh, is that it? No, there is also the MER of the underlying ETFs in the portfolio. Okay, well, how much will that add? Oh, another you know 20 basis points. Okay, now you have an all-in price that you can use to justify the value or compare to other options. Mm-hmm, for sure. Now, when it comes to the portfolio reviews that you mentioned you do for clients, there's certain things that we can do ourselves as you know, beginner to intermediate investors, let's say, you know, are there any things that you feel you really should hire a financial planner for, or are, is it primarily all things that we can do ourselves? Oh, I wouldn't say that uh, everyone could do this on their own. I think the research can be done on your own, but then that brings on so many questions. Like, how does this apply to my situation? Because I have, you know, this lira from this job that I left. And that's parked over here. And then I have these other accounts that I manage and these other ones that I pay fees on. Right. So it's like, when do you need help? I don't know when you're any kind of life change. So of course, as you're nearing retirement, you want to make sure that things are set up for you so that you can start drawing on your uh, and meet your spending needs, but also are, you know, maximizing the, um, the tax efficiency and, um, you know, paying low fees, uh, you know, because that's going to be a big expense for you in retirement. Um, you know, if you're just getting started and, and have those questions, I think you're uh, you have a little more degrees of freedom to kind of go out and make some mistakes on your own. Um, but I, I don't know. I find these journeys are really typical. Like, I don't know about you, but I got started investing with a big bank in mutual funds. I had a matching RSP through a former employer that uh, had to be invested in these kind of expensive mutual funds. I didn't know any better. And then I kind of started reading and started picking individual stocks. And then I started reading more and, and then I follow, started following a more index-based based philosophy, right? So that's the, that if you're willing to go through that kind of personal journey, you're going to make some mistakes along the way before you find your path. I think that's totally fine when you're young. Um, but when the stakes are pretty high, like you're closer to retirement, I mean, I think having an advisor to help piece it all together for you and show you how... 
uh, it all fits together is uh, is really beneficial. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, you want that holistic view. And you and I were talking offline before I hit record about the different financial planning software that we use. And and uh, Rob and I both use Snap Projections, which we're uh, big fans of. But yeah, that's just for any listeners. That's the kind of thing you want your financial planner to do, where they actually take all of your assets, all of your liabilities, all these different you know hard and soft things, actually model them out using a software like Snap Projections, and actually run different scenarios for you. And then you can make an informed decision, and then you're aware of the trade-offs, that kind of a thing. And that is a really hard thing to do yourself. Like these software packages aren't even available for regular retail investors. Uh, like I've had people ask, like, hey, Cornell, what do you use? Can I sign up for it too? And it's like, well, you actually, you can't <laughs> because they're actually dangerous to use if you're not trained how to use them um, because it's very easy to make a mistake and model something out wrong. And you're making these live decisions based on these facts which you think are true, but maybe because you didn't have the qualifications or because you don't know how to use the software, you make a mistake. And I mean, these mistakes can be catastrophic, right? If you're dealing with a big enough portfolio. Oh, yeah. I mean, the inputs are only as good as the person doing the inputting. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but yeah, I mean, yeah, a planner will use something like that to model uh, or to answer the big questions like, do I, like, what are the big questions of retirement? Do I have enough? How much can I spend? Right. Those are questions that aren't easily answered when you just look at kind of a pot of money inside your RSP and your TFSA, um, you know, add in CPP and OAS and, and maybe a work pension. Um, you know, they're, they're still hard to answer. And so it's just one of the hardest problems of our of our time is this decumulation. And so that that's when the advice is really needed. For sure. And why wouldn't you want a second pair of eyes on right. this thing, right? I mean, the stakes are so high. <laughs> There's a lot of money by the time you're actually willing to re- or able to retire. Why wouldn't you want a second opinion uh, from a professional, right? Just to help remove any biases you might have, anything, you know, and ask the questions that you may be never thought of, right? Just because from your experience, maybe you never thought of question X, Y, Z, and then the planner asks that and that might change everything, right? So uh, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I mean, I before we hit our financial, before we quit our jobs and, you know, did the whole early retirement, semi-retirement thing, I had two financial fee-for-service planners look at my numbers and I'm a nerd about this stuff. I could do it myself. And I'm like, I still want you guys to do your own numbers because this is a big deal. I'm about to hand in my resignation for work. I don't want to mess this up. So yeah, so I mean, and, and that's coming from a giant money nerd like myself. So, so, sure. yeah. So, I mean, why? I mean, why? Even, uh, even that's a great point. And even like doctors have their own doctor, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and engineers too, right? If you're an engineer and you you know you do your work, you want a colleague that you trust and respect to take a second look at your numbers, right? Because you never you never know. Not everyone's experience and knowledge is the same across the board, right? Why wouldn't you want that? Especially when there's these personal biases and then you know things of that nature, right? And whether that's just confirming what you already knew that's still valuable, mm-hmm. um, or you get a question um, or a point raised that you never considered. Yeah, right? oh, 100%. And, it's kind of like you don't know what you don't know, so why would you risk it when the stakes are that high, right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. So um, for those that are working toward an early retirement or maybe are already there, is there a particular portfolio structure that you like? So I'm thinking in terms of a bucket strategy or maybe just doing a flat withdraw from a balanced portfolio. Is there anything that, I mean, I know you, I'm sure you probably tailor things depending on what the client wants and what they feel comfortable with, but are there any that you sort of like more than others? Yeah, it's one of those real, it depends strategies, like how early is early retirement and uh, what are, you know, what was your income like when you're, when you're saving that really dictates what which account you're going to be contributing or, or focusing on. Um, but I will say that 
One of the things that's changed in retirement, uh, even for early retirees, is the uh, is one the advent of the TFSA has really changed the game um, because you can take out this tax free money and you continue to get contribution room every single year. Um, and then that's impacted how we treat RSPs. So it used to be, you know, leave your tax shelter alone as long as possible till you know age seventy one when you need to convert it to a RIF, and then start withdrawing. But now we're looking at maybe taking out more um, or money or like smaller amounts over a longer period of time from the RSP. So even at age like 55, you could start melting down the RSP over a long period of time while maybe continuing to contribute to or at least leave your TFSA alone. And so that's one strategy that I've seen. Um, and actually modeled for clients that that has worked really well is, uh, you know, they built up some pretty decent RSP assets, um, but starting to withdraw them sooner while leaving or continuing to contribute to the TFSA. And so that's one that's been pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that's so that when CPP OAS hits, they're not also getting hit with this giant amount that they have to withdraw from their RRSP and now they get bumped up to the higher tax bracket. So it's about- Potentially, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you're maybe uh, potentially avoiding OAS clawbacks and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. It's it's about tax planning and, and really smoothing out that tax rate um, over time rather than, uh, than having it mm-hmm. uh, a lot lumpier. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting vehicle, right? It lets you manage the tax bracket so much well, the the TFSA. I know I've we've kind of, you know, used that as well. I guess now I haven't really used I haven't taken any money out of the TFSA, but I could see how when you're in like full blown retirement, uh it can come in very, very handy just so that you stay in those lower tax brackets. And if you need extra money, then fine take some from your TFSA because that's not going to bump you up to the next level. So, and then, you know, especially when it comes to clawbacks and things like that, which can be so substantial. Now, and I also like, yeah. Cornell, I was going to say, I also like uh, having at least a year's worth of uh, spending in cash, right? Especially for an early retiree um, who's just been saving, contributing, investing their whole lives. Um, it's tough to make that transition to decumulation. You probably maybe don't have a pension starting at that uh, that early age, depending on how early that is, uh, or if you even had a pension. And so it's important to have that cash flow readily available, so you're not, you know, selling stocks or equities when um, you know at an inopportune time. Mm-hmm. So would you say having one year cash cushion plus you've got your portfolio and there's still a fixed income portion in that portfolio as well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that would be part of the dial down of risk, right? Is now you're in kind of a decumulation, you need to spend. And so uh, cash now makes up a portion of that total portfolio. If you look at it like a total household or a total uh, household portfolio, uh, fixed income might make up uh, another percent. And then, and then of course, you need equities uh, in there to you know help you beat inflation really and, and help that future consumption. Mm-hmm. So you're saying the, the, the one year cash is not a substitute for a portion of the fixed income side of your portfolio. It's like you still have it like a, you know, bond side um, exactly. together with your equities because that has another purpose. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And I just kind of treat that like three buckets, right? You've got your equities bucket, you've mm-hmm. got your fixed income or bonds bucket, and then you've got your cash bucket. And gotcha. so as you spend the cash, you need to replace it. Well, what's the best place to replace it from? You don't want, again, you don't want to sell stocks at an inopportune time. So you take it from your fixed income. Mm-hmm. Now, Whether assuming- that's bonds or GICs, right? Right. Uh, yeah. And so now you replace, you fill up your cash again with the bonds or GIC bucket, and then you can rebalance your stock bond allocation again 
right? So you're just constantly kind of, um, you know, replenishing each of these buckets. Mm -hmm. How big do you like seeing that fixed income or you know, GIC bucket being? Assuming you've got you know, really good, let's say you, when you were investing earlier before retirement, you're 100% equities or, you know, very aggressive type investor, you can deal with, you know, you can deal with fluctuations. Still, despite that, how large would you like to see that second bucket, that fixed income GIC bucket? I mean, it really, again, depends on the age of the retiree and on other kind of sources of income that might be coming in. Um, what I find is that, you know, the sweet spot is kind of that 60-40 uh, mix. But uh, assuming you have cash or you have maybe other income, maybe from a rental property or something, um, you know, I've seen an 80-20 portfolio or 70-30 even work. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, again, it just it's going to depend on the client and their tolerance for risk, their age, uh, and plus their other kind of income sources. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's no, no sort of hard, fast rule when it comes to that one, just because it's dependent on both the psychology of the client and also sort of their other assets and what their plans are and things of that nature, right? Yeah, I think, yeah. I, you know, if you start with kind of a 60-40 or a traditional balanced portfolio in mind, but just seeing, you know, you got to run some numbers and see what, um, if that expected return is going to meet your needs, right? It depends how long the retirement is, what those other, again, what those other sources of income are. Um, are you going to get, is that equity component high enough um, to meet your needs? Is it, um, is it maybe too aggressive because you have quite a bit of savings? So you could dial that down to 50-50 or 40-60. Mm -hmm. So it kind of depends on that situation. Right. Again, to modeling it out and seeing, okay, under these different scenarios and based on your goals, what would it actually, uh, how should it look like? And then when it comes to things, uh, like you mentioned, the one-year cash, is that, have we already subtracted any sort of income that you're getting from other sources, whether it's side gigs, whether it's, let's say, dividends, things of that nature? So yeah. would that actually decrease that cash amount because you're, all, because you're subtracting the sort of reliable cash flow that you're getting every single year? Yeah, it would be one year of um, spending mm -hmm. minus any, you know, pretty guaranteed sources of income coming gotcha. in. Right, so... You know, use use some round numbers. You're spending sixty thousand. You make ten doing other kind of freelance gigs. Uh, so you'd need to have fifty thousand available in cash for to meet your spending needs. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And then when it comes to withdrawing from your portfolio in an early retirement or a traditional retirement, which approach or approaches do you tend to prefer so that we don't actually run out of money in retirement, but also so that we don't have too much left to spend? by the time he passed away. So here I'm talking about things like, you know, the 4% rule, which many listeners have already heard of, or maybe make a bit more conservative, make it three, you know, three and a half percent rule, or there's also variable percentage withdrawals. Is there any sort of withdrawal strategy approach that you like and that you like, well, you can find yourself I, recommending a lot to your clients? Or I, I don't know that it's uh, appropriate to use those types of rules of thumb just because your, situa your circumstances are, are quite different. Well, first of all, you know, look at look at RSPs and RIFs, um, you know, starting a minimum mandatory withdrawal rate of 5.28%. Well, right there, you're over the 4% rule. Um, so, so then you have to look at your combined portfolio, which is a lot harder to do, um, right, rather than relying on these simple rules of thumb. And so, again, I kind of use a goals-based approach where it says, are you meeting your spending needs? I need to model this over a long lifetime. So I do, I do plans to, say, age 95. Uh, to show you how much you can spend, because that's first and foremost what you need. Your spending drives your plan. 
Okay. Now on top of your core spending, how much uh, or what type of one-time expenses are on the horizon? Do you need to upgrade your car in a couple of years? Do you want to, do you want to do a kitchen renovation about when travel returns and you want to do that big kind of pent up trip that, uh, that you've been waiting for? Um, let's capture those things because that's going to dictate how much you need to withdraw from your portfolio as well. So again, we don't just move, life doesn't just happen in a straight line where we can just say, I'm going to take out 4% plus ex- plus inflation uh, every single year, right? Especially in the early retirement years, a lot of my clients want to spend a little more in those years. And so how do we model that so that you know you don't spend too much that you don't leave enough for your later retirement years, but you can still kind of get your enjoyment out of your 50s and 60s. And so again, using this kind of rule of thumb um, can kind of get thrown out the window when you actually look at someone's unique situation. For sure. Yeah, so I guess to get a handle on your process, so you would model this out for a client when they first start working with you. And then I assume, let's say once a year or anytime there's any sort of significant change in their life, you would update their portfolio numbers, you would update that model with anything else that happened in their life, like maybe they just had a kid, and so now they need to factor in, you know, another RESP, something of that nature. And then, what's that, sorry? Childcare. Childcare, things like that, yeah. And then, so you factor that in, and then you run the scenario again, and in, in, in this case, snap projections in the model to see, okay, with the with these new inputs and with the updated values of your portfolio based on your current market numbers, here is, is it actually sustainable? This plan that we have is, is that the right process that you do with clients? Yeah, I would say so, right? I mean, it starts with the spending and all those goals, right? What are the goals? Let's capture all those, and then you know we're using Snap is really good at using you know your after after tax, after spending cash flow to allocate towards the most tax efficient uh, buckets. So, you know, you got one spouse earning six figures and another one on maternity leave or, you know, or earning in a lower income salary. So it's going to prioritize the higher income spouses RSP, for example, maybe the lower income spouses TFSA. Um, And so those are the types of conversations that we'll have in terms of uh, here's what's available to save. Uh, here's the best kind of allocation for that or prioritization for those. And then if you're able to meet those savings needs, here's what that means for your retirement outlook. So uh, it's going to mean that you could spend X in retirement or that you're still going to have a shortfall. So you might have to work a bit longer, right? So it's just about constantly kind of refining it, um, keeping an eye on your spending, making sure you hit your savings targets and then updating. It's like a course correction every uh, six months or a year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then do you do any Monte Carlo analysis on those numbers as well? Uh, you know, Snap came out with a tool that allows you to run a lot of worst case scenarios for market crashes. So yeah, that's uh, that's something that um, you know we'll model as well to see, you know, if there's a sequence of returns that isn't so favorable, um, could your portfolio or would this scenario survive that test? Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, I've been waiting for that feature for <laughs> so long. It's so good. So I've been using you know different third party tools that actually people can use for free, and I've mentioned them many times, like the you know the C Fire Sim, the Portfolio Visualizer, you know those guys. Right. Um, but uh, but that's really neat how how they've they've added that now for a more I guess robust kind of um, 
you know a thing that you can run. So um, yeah, very very interesting. And then last question for you, Rob. So you know with these low interest rates that we've been experiencing, many of us Canadians were reevaluating that fixed income safe portion of our portfolio. How do you approach that dilemma of buying a bond ETF for that fixed income portion of your portfolio versus just putting that money towards a really high interest savings account, which can you know give us a higher interest rate than a bond ETF? Uh, so you know, plus then also then we don't have to worry about losing money if interest rates go up. So I know I've been you know wrestling with this for a long time. I love to ask guests this question because we're in a very unique environment, right? Where you, I mean, we're seeing where you can get higher interest rates on high interest savings account than on bonds, right? And so, you know, how do you how do you tackle that question? Uh, do, do you still recommend doing bond ETFs? Yeah, t- tell me a little bit about your thought process there. So, I mean, in general, I think most clients should have a bond component to their portfolio. And if it's not for the, the expected return, um, at least it's for the ballast of balancing out the volatility of your stock component. Right. It's just to lower that overall volatility so that you don't experience these, you know, March crash where, you know, my 100% stock portfolio was down 35%. Um, you know, so, so the bond component, treating it more as the, as the lessening or dampening the volatility of your overall portfolio for one. And then the other thing is now it's forcing us to ask questions like, uh, what are some alternatives to bonds for this rate of return? And so does that mean a 60-40 portfolio is dead and I need to up the asset mix uh, or risk level to 70-30 or 80-20? You know, it really, again, it's going to depend on your on your risk tolerance and your preferences. But um, I'll look just look back to clients who were chasing high interest savings rates in December of last year. And there was one bank offering 3%, several others in the high twos. Uh, what happened to those in March, right? They all got slashed down to one or one and a half. And so, again, there's no guarantee in the high interest savings world, right? In order to get a guarantee, you've got to give something up. In, 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 in that case, it's liquidity for one, um, which means locking into a GIC um, or, you know, entering back into the bond market and, and seeing where that can go. And I feel like we've been having this discussion for 10 years yeah. about interest rates have nowhere to go but, but up. Uh, and they finally they continued to go down, and I think there's probably even you know a tiny little point to go down uh, even more from here. So I mean it it's tough to say you know the outlook of long term bonds doesn't look good, but um, but again does it still provide some value in your portfolio mm-hmm. in terms of lowering that volatility so that you can stay invested? I mean that's the point, right? Is so you can you can ride out these March the March crash. And know that you know things will come out ahead on the other side. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I still think they're important. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the the part of it that's been that I've just been going over my head over and over now for such a long time is the fact that okay, if you do a bond ETF, you're gonna, okay. Yes, you're going to get the low interest, just like on a high interest savings account. It's still relatively low to what it's been, you know, historically. Um, so you you know, no one you don't no one really wins that much in that scenario. But then also. With a bond ETF, you're subject to that risk of actually losing some money, you know, if interest rates actually do go up, right? And so my kind of thought process has been, well, if the purpose of the safe portion of your portfolio is to limit volatility and just to have cash, you know, ready on hand, why wouldn't you just put it in a high interest savings account? You know what I mean? Um, So do you think there's any negatives to taking that approach? Although I mean, the, the I, potential missed out capital gains, you know, because interest rates drop even lower. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it's perfectly sensible to hold kind of a GIC ladder instead of bond. Um, you know, I think that's totally fine. Um, but again, I go back to the asset allocation ETF where you don't really see, rather than seeing an individual bond, uh, a bond ETF doing its thing, when it's all wrapped up in uh, in an asset allocation ETF, then you don't fixate so much on that individual investment. You know, this bond component is, you know, just kind of sitting there doing nothing. Um, it's part of the overall return, right? So like a VBAL, for example, right? It's just part of that return. And maybe that lowers the expected returns of that portfolio. But, um, you know, it's all wrapped up into one. So you don't really, it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb. And then the other thing I'll say is that, yeah, clients are saying, uh, readers are saying, um, what if interest rates go up? Um, you know, what, what's going to be the impact here? Well, you know, you're not going to lose money with a bond as long as you hold it for the duration. Uh, you're going to, you know, you, you are going to make make money. And the thing with these uh, aggregate bond ETFs is that interest rates rise. Well, as their bonds mature, they will be buying back into these higher interest rate bonds. So again, it's they're doing this rolling kind of uh, purchases of new bonds as well. So it's not like it's just a total dead asset class. Uh, it just feels like a really weird time just because rates are so low, right? But if, again, if you think long term, you know, your bond uh, duration is, uh, you know, matches your time horizon, you're not going to lose money on these. Um, it's just how, how does it fit into your, you know, your retirement plan, your income needs mm. uh, is the bigger question. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting time, right? Because you have this COVID, we have this instability, people want stability, they also want higher interest rates, but there are no high interest rates. So you got to go equities, but then it's COVID, so volatility, right? And, you know, we get into these really interesting situations now, right? Where, there, again, I say this a lot on the show, there is no silver bullet where, okay, you just have to do X and everything will be fine. And that's the best answer in every scenario that unfortunately doesn't seem to exist in our world. So, um, yeah. I know they, they say that if you're not happy with... Uh with some portion of your portfolio, then you're investing in the wrong things, right? Like something shouldn't, should be, <laughs> something should be out of whack. If you're investing <laughs> diversified enough, something's going to be out of whack and you're going to wish that you had less of that and more of something else. Right. It's just how it goes, right? We've all seen that, um, that, uh, periodic table of returns and how the top performing asset class changes every year. Uh, it can go anywhere from the top to the bottom. <laughs> and so uh, that's the whole point of diversification is uh, stop trying to look for an alternative to yeah. bonds or to Canadian stocks or whatever. It's just hold everything uh, in an appropriate way. And, um, you know, that diversification will win out in the end. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot to ask, actually, speaking of the Canadian allocation, uh, we were talking about portfolio construction and being diversified internationally earlier. You know, when it comes to the home country bias, how much Canadians have invested specifically in, let's say, Canadian, you know, broad market ETF. What's your take on that? What sort of percentage do you like to advise clients to have? Because when we look at some of these asset allocation ETFs, right, a lot of them are still fairly Canada heavy when it comes to their weight, a lot more than what Canada represents in the global marketplace, right? And so there is an argument to be made well, it's a pretty hefty home country bias. You should definitely have less in Canada, more in U.S. and international. Um, what's your take on that? So I have a couple thoughts on that. One is that you have to remember it, pretty recently, maybe in the last 20 years or so, um, we had foreign content limitations on our portfolios, right? In our RSP, you know, there's like a 30% foreign content limit. 
And so a lot of this is almost by design where we were just like uh, forced to invest in Canada. So when I look back at old legacy portfolios from retirees now, uh, lots heavily tilted towards Canada. So, I mean, that makes sense, but it was almost by design back then because you couldn't venture out into uh, foreign markets. Um, but now, of course, you can. The world's wide, the world's wide open. Uh, yes, Canada makes up 3 4% of the global market, but um, the argument is that we uh, live in Canada and spend Canadian dollars and so it does make sense to have a bit of a home country bias to it. And so Vanguard did a paper on this uh, a while ago. And uh, what they found was about, you know, Canadian investors had about a 66% home bias wow. in their portfolio. So pretty, like really high. Yeah, that's terrifying. But they actually found the sweet spot was, you know, 25, 30%, uh, which is quite a bit higher than, you know, three, 4% of the global market. Uh, but their their rationale was that it lowers the it was the currency conversion uh, because you got to convert that for you know so it eliminated some currency risk um, and uh, that was really the sweet spot for volatility um, and so they actually you modeled I think their asset allocation ETFs off of this research because uh, VEQT which I'm invested in has about twenty nine percent Canadian content. Okay, so initially that kind of freaked me out too. Uh, that was a, that was higher than I was used to, uh, but you know, reading that paper and kind of understanding the rationale behind it, it makes sense. Um, but for investors who are looking for a little lower uh, Canadian content, uh, but still like that asset allocation mix, I know that the iShares version, the XEQT, is about twenty three percent Canadian, so uh, you know, a little less of a tilt towards mm -hmm. uh, towards the home country. Yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah, I always, uh, <laughs> always enjoy geeking out on that topic because yeah, that's another one where I look at my portfolio and I have trimmed down the Canadian weight, uh, you know, a fair bit. It's no longer, you know, a third, a third, a third, um, you know, like third Canadian, third US, third national. It is less than that now, but it's one of those things you keep kind of rethinking. Like, is it still too high? Because you keep going back to that. Canada's only three to four percent, right? So it's sort of an exit even. Even with the lowered one, it still kind of bothers you a bit. So, uh, but no, thank you so much for that input, and I'll have to check out that paper. That, that it's going to be a very, uh, very interesting Christmas reading for myself. Awesome. Okay, well, Rob, well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, can you tell us one more time where can listeners go to learn more from you or hire you to get their questions answered? Anything at all? Uh, let us know. So the best place to find me is at boomerandecho.com, where I've been blogging for the last 10 years, and you'll find my fee-only financial planning service there, as well as uh, the articles I've written over the years. Um, and I'm also fairly active on Twitter, uh, at Boomer and Echo. All right, great. Well, thanks again for coming on, Rob. You've been in this field for so long. It's great to pick your brain on all these things. And, uh, and, and yeah, have a wonderful uh, holiday season. Cornell, thanks so much. This was a pleasure. All right, thank you. Take care. Bye. All right, I hope you enjoyed the show. A big thanks to Rob for coming on, and you can check him out over at boomerandecho.com. Also, don't forget to check out that high-interest savings account and the new high-interest TFSA NRRSP, where you can get that really high interest of 2.3%, and that's over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash eq. After you open an account, just send me any confirmation email you get from them to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca. .ca, and I'll send you my guide on the top ETFs in Canada, which includes everything that I currently invest in and why. I also arrange for some more free tools and resources for Bulldog Canada listeners, so you can get that free tool that I use to see how my investments are doing across all my accounts over at Build Wealth Canada. 
ca slash passive this is the one that i'm absolutely hooked on where it helps you automatically rebalance to and i have that partnership set up with them too where listeners of the show can actually get that premium account for free for a limited time so all the instructions are over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash passive And last but not least, I posted my presentation for you on the different types of passive index investing so you can figure out which type is right for you and you can get that over for free at buildwealthcanada.ca slash investing style. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash investing style. All one word, no hyphens or anything like that. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that. Hope you liked the episode. Have a good one and see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.